This is Shaka Ward Speak. Hey, welcome back to Shaka Ward Speak. We got the whole gang back together again. It's me, Ryan, Cody. Hey, guys. Hey. Kerry Kai's not here. No, you're right. Yeah, he has been. In in case anyone thought that maybe he was becoming a permanent fixture. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, maybe I'll just put his information in the show notes anyway. Just he's here. We were actually thinking of creating a uh, artificial intelligence model of Carrie and just having it respond <laughs> to the conversation like Carrie would have. Yeah, yeah. but in we light could, of previous conversations, we considered that to be a bit too on the nose. Yeah, we were yeah. going to call it Carrie can do it. Yeah, Carrie can do it. Yeah, or or actually, I was the other one was Carrie this. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Grammatically, hey, <laughs> interpret that however you want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so we're not we're not a. Uh, we're not with, I guess, Carrie. Yeah, Carrie's we've got here. we've got uh, the three of us, the the three normal folks you, who are always here. Yeah, um, but yeah, we got another episode of design stuff like you just heard, and it's, uh, it's been a while. It's been a while. We yeah. haven't done this uh, in a minute. Um, we needed then, a break. Yeah, you know, like we get heavy, and then we get then we like need we a get break. heavier. Then we get heavier in yeah. various ways. Cody, that's a jab. We yeah, every once in a while we just need a little release valve. Yes, and uh, a time to just kind of get back to some of the. The things, because I mean, honestly, if you if you listen to our podcast, you know that we we are uh, I don't know consistent. I guess that's a good way to put yeah. it. Um, but also within this, like we're we're probably going to hit some of the same larger general topics with mm-hmm. things. Um, but yeah, so for for this episode of design stuff, uh, we're going back to the Bauhaus. It's yep. one of my favorite places, and sure. we're uh, going to be uh, walking through a few uh, quotes from Annie Albers. Um, so if you're not familiar with Annie Albers, got some uh, some crib notes for you. So she was born Annalise Fleischmann. In mm-hmm. Berlin in like 1899, a good year. So she got the uh, she got to see the whole change of everything, mm-hmm. everything that happened. Um, so her her mom came from a family of publishers, and okay. her dad was a furniture maker. So she grew up in a house of making, like mm-hmm. just and actually just a family lineage of it as well. Um, and so she started painting, and mm-hmm. when she started painting, she uh, worked under Martin Brandenburg, who's an impressionist painter. Uh, learned from him and then decided I want to go to art school despite kind of what that would entail like financially and things like that um, for her in you know the 1920s mm-hmm. to go to art school um, so she decided to do that she spent some time in a German school that has a very very long name that I'm not adept enough to pronounce okay uh, spent a little bit of time there but then she popped out and in 1922 she started attending the Bauhaus at the time of the Bauhaus one of the only programs that she could get into uh, was textile design and uh, it wasn't really something that she was like, it's not like she went there for that. I think, right? I've, I think I'm remembering this person now. Oh yes. She is. Uh, she's pretty fantastic. Uh, but one of the things, one of the very providential things that happened there is uh, she met her husband. So Joseph Albers was teaching there and she met him uh, mm-hmm. as she was going through. Um, they got married, I think, you know, a couple of years later. Um, but while she was there, she studied under Johan Itten and also Paul Klee. So mm-hmm. she um, was taking a lot of her kind of impressionist, uh, painting background and her interest in that. And she began applying it to textiles in a lot of really interesting, uh, fantastic ways. And if you look at her textiles or her, or her prints that she's made, they're, they're absolutely phenomenal. They are kind of some of those pieces that stylistically or aesthetically, they 
sort of stand the test of time. Mm -hmm. They don't feel a hundred years old. Mm -hmm. They don't feel 80 years old. Um, right. So she, um, when the Bauhaus, everything with the Bauhaus happened, she shut down. She and Joseph came to the United States and they both began teaching at Black Mountain College. Mm -hmm. So they were working there for a long time. Um, she taught there. Um, and so a few just kind of big things about who she was and like how her career uh, went on. Uh, she was an educator, a textile designer, and a printmaker for her whole life until she passed. So she was the first textile designer to ever have a solo show at MoMA. Okay. Which is kind of impressive. Uh, it's pretty a, good. A little bit, not bad. Um, she also uh, did a lot of writing and she wrote a lot about uh, design history and actually became kind of a founding voice in making that even a field of study. Mm. So in terms of design history, she's also kind of uh, one of the big names. Um, and later in her life, like I said, she moved into printmaking because as she and uh, Joseph went to uh, other institutions, they started working with different media and she really fell in love with printmaking and she saw some of the similarities between printmaking and the way she was approaching textile design. Mm -hmm. um, so she did a lot of lithography and screen printing. Um, so that's her in sort of a quick nutshell. Um, really interesting because, you know, she's active from like 1920 to... You know, much yeah. later in the 20, uh, 20th century. So um, a lot of stuff. And if you've gone to any modern art museum, you've probably seen something that is either her work or heavily, heavily influenced by her work. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And thank you for um, listening with us. Yeah. Um, we'll catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs> this has been your history moment with yeah. Dr. Gareth Lackwell. <laughs> You've been That's a fantastic really helpful, audience. <laughs> yeah, we, we love you guys. Check <laughs> you next time. So it's, it's really interesting because mm, last year, I just had like an epiphany one day where I was like, wait, where does fabric come from? Yeah, like yeah. I know where fabric comes from, but I don't really know where fabric comes from. They cut it off of Joanne's sheep. dude. Yeah. So I realized that there's <laughs> sheep that they cultivate that just have these sheets that grow off of them and they yes. snip off the textiles and yeah, they're, they're, send them to factories. It's called fabric um, sheep. <laughs> they're very popular in Turkey. Um, anyways. So yeah. So I started doing a bunch of research and her, her stuff popped up. Oh um, yeah. Oh yeah. And I had like a micro moment of being like, oh, this is a really interesting, very niche section of like history and making. Because I started looking into like uh, what loom technologies are currently existing mm -hmm. for like at home textile making. My wife has a, um, a desire to grow linen in our backyard okay. because she's watched videos of people growing linen and mm -hmm. then harvesting it and getting all the fibers out. It's very interesting. And then I explained to her that once we have all of the linen fibers and we've spun it, what then? So, <laughs> well, then I think that that little guy Rumpelstiltskin comes in and he tries to steal your babies. I think that's how that works. Am I mixing up two two things? Yeah, I mean, I'd be. like to streamline that making process a little bit. Um, but no, I, I, I the think baby that I don't want to be stolen. No, it's uh, a it's a good call. I mean, honestly, like uh, it, like there's a yeah. What do you do with the linen? Make canvas. Well, no. So True. I started researching looms basically oh, okay. to weave to like like what is the most localized technology that's not industrialized to actually turn thread into fabric. No, um, I so think you guys need to do this. I was thinking like how, how this is completely off topic. No, it's probably, of, it's probably on topic for us. Probably. I was curious how much fabric and uh, textiles, like a single person would need to produce in order to cover all the clothing needs of a, like a small community of maybe mm. let's say, 15 to 20 families. Right. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in on everything you're saying so far. That's all I got. Yeah. I like it. I would say from my experience uh, playing city builder games, um, 
it's it's always more than than the game allows you to have. Uh, yes, that's fair. <laughs> you always got people freezing in the winter. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, no, it is a great question because you know you think of of, of folks who like their job was just to make the fabric for the yeah. clothing. Well, uh, that's why like the industrial revolution in England and how it focused so much on textile production was such a big deal mm -hmm. because something like a huge percentage of England's population, their whole job was just basically taking uh, the raw materials to create textiles that yeah. then became everyone's clothes. RIP England, man. So not the same anymore. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> so yeah, no, I think uh, I'm excited now because this is, this is touching on some, no, this is good. Dude. It's, I, it's touching on a nerve and Chris is listening right now. And I'm just saying, by the do loom. it. Yeah. Do it. By the loom. By the loom. By the it loom. looms large. It, it does. It they do. Our house is not big enough for the size of the loom. Fruit of the loom. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. I'm very excited just, right now. <laughs> yeah, so I think you know it's it's funny because I've got a I've got a few quotes that I need coffee. <laughs> we didn't get it this time. <laughs> we so. didn't do But I've got a few I got a few of her quotes. Um uh, that she's she's actually speaking them in her voice, which is uh, fantastic. Okay. But got a few of them, and I'm trying to think like from this point, like which one is the best one to kind of jump into, um, because I think like you know there's there's a there's something you're talking about in terms of like the usefulness of a thing, um, but there's also like an artfulness of mm -hmm. those things, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. I think that there's a there's a that is a that is a gigantic conversation in the history yes. of art, right? Useful mm -hmm. useful versus art. Um, but also it's one of those things where we as really like just small minded humans with a really lack of scope and scale, mm -hmm. we rip them apart mm -hmm. and say, tell me which one is better, which one it is. And so she actually has a, a quote that I think works kind of well with this. So it's a little bit of a longer one and uh, she does have a very thick German accent. So it, it may be difficult, um, but let's take a listen to it right let's now. Let's give it a chance. Do it. Designing usually means to give shape to a useful object. We do not speak of designing a picture or a concerto, but we speak of designing a house, a city, a bowl, a fabric. But surely they all, like a painting or music, can be works of art. Usefulness does not prevent a thing, anything, from being art. We must conclude then that it is the thoughtfulness and care of the design that makes a house turn into art, and that it is this degree of thoughtfulness and care that we try to arrive at. Yeah, so a, a lot of stuff there, a whole lot of stuff there. And, you know, you may hear that and you might say, oh, yeah, I understand. I get that. That that, that tracks. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, if if you've if you've ever had to sit through several semesters of art history or art theory, um, a lot of what she's saying is not not actually just a simple statement. Um, she's actually kind of throwing some uh, wrenches in the whole system in a lot of ways. And so the thing that interested me about this that I wanted to bat around with you all is uh, she really talks about the fact that usefulness does not invalidate art, which goes against huge sections of art historical writing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't know, maybe the best way with this, uh, I was thinking Ryan is like, uh, coming from a background of painting, mm -hmm. what, what did you, did anybody ever talk about usefulness? Uh, and if they did, like how did, how did it even factor in? Cause cause the design side of things, I think we have a very opposite experience. Mm -hmm. Well, usefulness often was relegated to the kind of uh, 
sort of the craft side of the discussion mm-hmm. in the crafting movement and just a descriptive historical, the conversations that like when I got into painting in a serious way or an, um, which means in, in like the ideology side of it, the, the, the questions were around the value and so the, the, the idea, like, is it better? So the emergence of activism in, in social practices in the arts. So like the idea that like, like, am I stewarding my time in the best possible way? So it's sort of like, if I can be creative by cleaning a river, then why do I need to paint when paint the, the value of painting is in question. Mm-hmm. And then behind that is the, the, you know, the value of like supportive categories that would buttress painting. So like, yeah, yeah. you know, all those kinds of issues, beauty, those kinds of things. So, um, and then, uh, that was in the West coast. When I came to the East coast, um, then it was a discussion on what is a, like, so what is a painting? Right. And so then like, this kind of um, relativistic, you know what a painting is by the thing that's like a painting because it retains some kind of intrinsicness that you can better see in the thing that's like the painting. And it became kind of like a semantical and ontological dance um, between definitions. So, um, so you tilt like, so usefulness mm-hmm. um, was definitely not at the forefront of the conversation at all. Yeah. But value in, ontology like definitions were mm-hmm. and so it's sort of like a philosophical game that like if it if it's answered here then you have to answer it elsewhere for other, other things yeah so by by not being able to answer it here means that you also can't answer it elsewhere mm-hmm. and so that means that whatever is made or done say in this localized conversation that is ambiguous validates the ambiguity of other things that we can't define one way or mm. the other. So there's very much a um, precedent mm-hmm. to where we're currently at. Yeah. And most people wouldn't think that a bunch of academic painters could have that much influence on the way we're thinking about humans now. Yeah. So anyhow, that's, that's sort of a, so it's almost like pretty the, cryptic, but no, it makes sense. Like the, uh, the, mm. the, the definitional like obfuscation Mm -hmm. was actually maybe more indicative of like larger ideological spaces. Yeah. So you you got universal application developed through particular Mm -hmm. particulars that, that um, require a kind of particular milieu Mm -hmm. that isn't obligated to usefulness. So the lack of obligation creates the, um, the aesthetic realm of play. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that like play is a necessary feature of doing any number of things. It's, it's a way of, it's a, it's an, it's an un, um, play is kind of like a way of not talking about usefulness and instrumentality Mm. or prag, you know, pragmatism. So would you see like, at least within your experience and the the programs you went through, would you see like those two things as like oppositional play and usefulness? Would you see them as like, or not enough necessarily? I think I think they would be. They, I think they were they were kind of put pitted against each other to, mm-hmm. um, 
to, to create uh, definition through contrast mm-hmm. and, and uh, give license to move further in, in one or the other direction. And that's funny because within the realm of design, like if anybody's sitting here as uh, somebody with some interest or history in design and you're saying, oh, like playfulness, it's actually something that uh, within certain parts of design is kind of like part and parcel to what mm-hmm. we do. Yeah. Like that playfulness should be a part of it. And with how you're describing it, it makes sense. Because we look at the whole historical space of like art versus craft, uh, you know, design versus art. If you want to put them in those sort of mm-hmm. uh, those sort of binaries, the um, it would make sense then why design would have like a playfulness to it because it's not because we uh, we as in the design field, uh, I think tend to have a lot more. It is difficult to veer away from usefulness mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's like what if you have if you have design that is not useful. Uh, then what is it? Mm-hmm. Uh, You'd almost could, be required to start importing categories from the conversations that are being had in the world of painting in order to maybe justify why a designer's doing things that are not obviously useful. Which is what's happened. I was going to say, which is exactly what's yeah. happening. So a lot of universities, you're seeing uh, design programs that are like uh, screaming to be within the fine arts. Yeah, design programs that look like painting programs in 1980. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's never, I mean, it's, yeah, it's putting on your daddy's shoes and acting like you're, you're old enough to wear yeah. them or you fit them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and the fittingness is, is interesting because uh, they, they do have, there are different ways to think about it. And I think that's why this quote was so interesting to me is because I could see like the oppositional forces that she was talking about mm-hmm. and how she was very just uh, kindly just saying like usefulness does not have to invalidate art. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that uh, a piece of art can be useful, like so her textiles could be on a table yeah. As not just decorational, but also like uh, creating atmosphere and space, uh, allowing for experiences to happen, uh, denoting a number of things. Yeah. Well, this um, is like that's nice. Nicholas Wollestorff's art in action mm-hmm. thesis. So, like, you know, they used to make work songs. You yeah. Know, like songs that were meant to be used for morale while like working on the railroads or, mm-hmm. you know, a chain gang work and yeah, yeah. you know different era of work but like mm-hmm. so like there's a whole class of music that was dedicated to the 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 worker mm-hmm. and so and it was an a form it's a form of art that is best understood in the action of doing work as an accompaniment mm-hmm. so um so then you know so he's got all kinds of categories in that in that book which i think was written in 1980 i think um maybe just a hair earlier but he was certainly doing prior work he had like worlds and works and worlds of art i think came before that but so he was already doing some of that 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 legwork on this idea but and then he's got his latter work from 2012 which is social practices i think i think that one is more social practice where he kind of like waffles on his definitions a little bit like he's just early later but yeah like we don't really um the the modernist idea of purification uh meant a certain kind of seriousness mm-hmm. as a support to the 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 thrust or the goal of of uh purifying art as a form disentangled from you know like uh the polis like, mm-hmm. like civil political religious right so yeah so so then you get so whereas design you know design is like not untethered from that because it, it right. actually instrumentally is um, 
more eminently necessary to uh, various industrialized applications. So it's just the way that things are, are kind of taking shape. So it's like you have your poets and your um, painters and your jazz musicians, and they're all pulling into a certain direction. And then you have your, um, your craft movement, which is, which is like a, this is a bourgeoisie. It's like a middle, yeah. you know, middle-class kind of, you know, average, you know, descriptively socioeconomically societally, like people that are like, I want to make things, but I don't want to have to like, think about it. Totally good. I'm not, I, I'm not yeah, an yeah. anti, you know, I mean, you, know, you guys know I'm not uh, conscientiously an elitist at all. So mm-hmm. like, I mean, I may, may stumble and, and be a jerk one day, but, but I don't, you know, it's not, not my conscious desire at all. So, um, my problem with all of it is, is stuff we've talked about in the past, but it's, it's that it is that they're not, they're not, uh, necessarily at odds with each other. That's the point about bringing up Waldorf. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah. um, it's unavoidable that well, we talk about it. So I'll say this and then, and then you guys take over. So we've talked and you know, we've like, there's uh, one of our favorite authors, Calvin Searville. So we've talked about, um, he talks about aesthetics as, as being suggestion rich. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of tried to play with that, that a little bit. And then, you know, he's talked about, I think, so I think if, if you put his, his idea of um, art and aesthetics together. So if you said that the arts are um, the suggestion, rich symbolification of objectified meaning. Mm-hmm. So say it again, the suggestion, rich, uh, symbolification of objectified meaning. It's to say that, um, so you could, you could like take the suggestion rich parts and say that it follows from the symbolification of objectified meaning. In other words, when something is, it suggests more. Yeah. And so, um, at some point, this is just an unavoidable fact of what we make, whatever category and, uh, reasoning for it, we place on it. And so it'll always allude to more in one sense or another. It'll have like, codified meaning it'll have mm-hmm. coherence it'll it'll work that's the whole point of an artwork it works so design works mm-hmm. you know when it does and so it does some task um and the separating of these things has created rich intellectual discourse but and its institutions are built on it mm-hmm. um so then they have to maintain uh an assumed disunity to create a contrived unity. Right. You know, so this is sort of like the flow of where we've been. And, but all the while, I'm just not convinced that these are separate things like craft art design are, are much more of a, a parts to a whole mm-hmm. in my mind. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, it, it is weird because, of it. <clears throat> you know, do do any of those fields without doing any of the others. It's, yeah, I mean, that's exactly it's, it. It's so it's, yeah. it's ridiculous. Um, but also I think about, you know, you mentioned that um, kind of the vagueness uh, around some of these topics uh, reinforce the vagueness of every, of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we get into this sort of like uh, navel gazing downward spiral to mm-hmm. nowhere. Um, and when I think about this, the idea of like usefulness, I also think that like this is sort of uh, the way that even modern kind of uh, social and political commentary goes, where mm-hmm. it's like, well, tell me the things about you that make you useful, mm-hmm. as if uh, the creation of the person didn't imbue them with usefulness in the mm-hmm. first place. Yeah, um, and it's just our laziness that means that we can't figure out what that usefulness is, or our yeah. arrogance, or our pride, or whatever else right. it is. Mm-hmm. And so, even like within the space of art, it's like you know, if my my four year old son makes a drawing and I hang it on the fridge, 
are you going to tell me like, oh, it's it's not art or it's just craft or it's just design or it's just not useful, period? I mm-hmm. mean, like, how are you going to, how, where do we get this mm-hmm. kind of like, this hubris to kind of have that conversation in a way? Mm-hmm. Well, usefulness starts getting defined in terms of governments and industrialized systems 100%. when usefulness should be grounded in useful to humans. Yeah, so, so, so it's which like, is it becomes much more of a personal um point of view personal yeah, relational we, yeah, I was about to say we don't, communal. Yeah. we don't do a whole like is this relationally useful you know mm-hmm. so like we all have art in our home and one capacity one useful a- aspect of that art is to make our home feel hospitable yeah. and welcoming and mm-hmm. also to create spaces where people can talk and ask questions about things mm-hmm. yeah um, so, so it's always useful to what and to whom mm-hmm. yeah but that useful it's it, yeah it's all couched in the industrialized um, you know capitalistic oh yeah you know, I mean, like um, we've said for a long time, like we reduction. we are so thoroughly industrialized, we don't even realize yeah. how much we are thinking as factories and just like rubber yep. stamps churning out things. Which is why the which is why a lot in a good way. It's why the artists were fighting so hard to purify it from all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to kind of go well, like so. That's the thing in the conversation. Like if you so if you remove God from the equation, then you're you're trying to elevate man as God, mm-hmm. and you're trying to create a kind of Edenic. A heavenly space of non what's the word it's not non-contingent but it's it's a kind of um insulated well it's a it's a utopia it's a euphoric yeah. state of bliss um in in terms of personal awareness to knowledge or experience right mm-hmm. and um without naming it without pinning it down and so it's this, but it's all, it's all in the, the, um, subcategories of what someone's starting assumption was like, is there a God, not a God? Are they, are they, uh, you know, um, theist or, or non-theist? Are they de- uh, deistic or are they, you know, like, and those were subcategories smuggled into the ambition and then design is you know, some, some design was trying to bring about a certain kind of utopia as well. Oh yeah. But through, through the, almost like through stronger materialistic means in a way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or mechanized means like sort of embracing the machine. So you might see yeah. like there's an embedded utopic drive within certain generations of makers, but their dispositions towards maybe the headier or the more intellectual mm-hmm. or their disposition analytical analytical or yeah. towards the just like physical making mm-hmm. usefulness, if you will, mm-hmm. drove them towards that sort of painting yep. or design yeah. if you want to use those as the really big buckets. Mm-hmm. Um, and try, you know, so the removal of figure, the removal of things that are beholden to tradition and history, mm-hmm. not saying that's good. I'm just describing. Because then there's the quote unquote, you know, a lot of the craft movements were pushbacks against all that. Yes. Like, no, we're trying to Deep get human. rid of all that, yeah. rehumanize yeah. things yeah, in yeah. very sort of like not basic, but traditional making methods. Yeah. Yeah. So when the, when the futurists were actually doing stuff 110 years ago, they were having the same fight and struggle that we've been talking about with the AI series. That's right. I mean, it's the same exact stuff. So Marinetti's yep. over here talking about the train and the locomotive, like just yep. barreling down on us and being the this fascination thing, of embrace emotion. it, embrace it. It's taking us somewhere. And it's yeah. like, nobody knows where the hell these tracks go. Yeah. But you're telling us to get on the train. Yeah. And so like, it's, it's all in there. It's the frenetic thing, but it's also like, there is a, a, a large amount of like humanity. You just got to kind of check at the coat check mm-hmm. before you enter. Um, and that's the thing, man. You you got the uh, just the 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 poet the metaphor, not the metaphor, man. It's the wrong word. The 
the travesty of the modern project was to get on the train mm-hmm. and as a as an as a utopic idea and Hitler was getting people on a train. Oh, 100%. You know what I mean? And, yep. and that was the stuff that was the horror of Stalin. I mean, Stalin, mm-hmm. it was the horror of of the duplicitous, the, the, the way these ideas cut in two directions. Yeah. Um, because, because it was untethered from uh, morality, it was operating on borrowed capital. Mm-hmm. And so you default to evolutionary ideas about humans and, 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 a, and a lack of morality. Yeah. So, so you have utopia with uh, no, no moral center um, and an inability to account for the, the internal workings of, of man, if you will, or humanity. And yeah, so then it just scatters. It just, mm. it just you know, it just, um, and if you catch enough amnesia, like yeah. which we have now, there's folks that just kind of like intuitively don't realize how we got here. And so they just can kind of pick up and say, no, it's, yeah, I can, I can do this, this, and this. And so like, mm-hmm. you know, for some folks, the conversation doesn't even seem to matter. Right. You know, but, but the thing is the history is what, what's key because we are, you know, um, even though we try not to, there's no way to not talk about how dire, <laughs> I can never not talk about how dire things are because they are, <clears throat> um, you know, uh, because we're just the cliche. That's not a cliche where if we don't know our history, we're doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Well, that the reason why is because humans are not that different. So we just do things terrible ways over and over again, over and over again. <laughs> and then we Klaus Schwab it to death and yeah, and then that doesn't work. Well, but you mentioned yeah. like uh, materials mechanization and things mm-hmm. like that. So I think this is, it's a really pretty good segue into uh, the second quote for, uh, for Annie. Um, and so uh, this one I think is a little, little, little easier to hear uh, a little shorter, but here we go. When you work with a material and a process, then you are uh, absorbed by those two factors and something happens what you might call unconsciously and I have quite often said and still believe that that it would be quite a salvation to the present art scene if there was more concentration on a material and a process. Yeah, so um, I think what struck me about that the most <clears throat> why I pulled it out was um, like she's saying this in like 1974. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're like 50 years on and I'm like, could you speak up louder for the people in the back today mm-hmm. about materials and process? Because when I hear that, I'm like, she's talking about it and knowing some more about her and Joseph and the stuff that they really dealt mm-hmm. with. They were big on materials because they, they started to feel even with some of the stuff that was going on with the Bauhaus that we were, we were moving as artists and designers away from like the, the stuff mm-hmm. of the world we're in. Yeah. Right. So, um, because you had these folks who were doing like, you started to get a lot of kind of like experience making mm-hmm. that was going on. Right. So, um, well, there's a lot of transcendentalism happening a lot and a lot of, um, experimental drug use. And so that's what I was saying before, like you had the more in the fine arts that were becoming more ethereal, mystical. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a goal. Like what's, what's this cut? What, like, is there a unified field of knowledge? You're also maybe getting into like us in the seventies and you guys can check me on this, maybe getting into like a second generation of art in the universities and academies where it's like you had a early sort of first half of the century, all the people who are making painting Bauhaus folks, they come over to America, they found these institutions, they're teaching. And then like, there's a second generation of people who are coming up who have more of a theoretical or university institution mentality about the arts. Yeah. 
and that's starting to change the flow of things. And then the generation that precedes them was like, whoa, this is like a little well, bit like the less about between, the making than we yeah, yeah we thought it was. It's less principled and more I- ideologue. Yeah, which which tracks within uh, design because where where she's saying this quote in the seventies, you'd be looking at uh, fields like uh, serve desi- service design. That if you're talking about usefulness, they took like the usefulness of design and they like zoomed in on it even yeah. more. So you're talking about um, you know between her time at the Bauhaus and when she's speaking, kind of that fifty year period, you also have like fields of like ergonomics within design that are popping out mm-hmm. where you're actually having like how people exist within physical spaces in terms of height and width mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, and you also have uh, these concepts of like universal design in terms of how like un- how how design can actually like work for all people. So that if I make a broom it actually it actually works as mm-hmm. a broom for everybody. Um, and so all of these things, while they may be useful, they are much more in the kind of theoretical, ideological sort of space um, because they don't they don't not impact the making of things, mm-hmm. but they're not concerned with it. Well, mm-hmm. and plus a lot of the making is being outsourced to industrialization. Exactly. So there's no first order, I'm a designer, and so I'm going to sit down and make a textile. Mm-hmm. And there's like a complete one-to-one relation from maker to object. Now it's like, well, we're in ergonomics, we're in industrial design, I'm going to design a product, but maybe, and maybe I'll design a few physical, uh, like, for lack of a better term, pre-visualizations or prototypes. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the actual making and product, that all gets outsourced to industrialization. 100%. And so when, when I think of like, when I think of the opposite of what you're talking about, Cody, when I think of the opposite of that, in terms of what she's saying about material and process, the thing I'm thinking about is that what has been offloaded is actually material and process. You know, you might get to say, "Hey, we would just just get pulp wood and do this thing with it." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then we need this many of it, and then all we've done is let the engineers kind of take hold of how that stuff is done through the mechanization and industrialization of the process. Even just think about the uh, prevalence of like poured concrete construction. Mm-hmm. And how that fits in is like I've got an idea for a shape of a building mm-hmm. and a set of forms and how I want them to come together. And so I'm going to use this material that starts out of slush, yeah, and pour it into the shape. Mm-hmm. And that's great because I don't have to deal with timbers and I don't have to deal with all the other historical building materials that have a certain unique characteristic that you have to work into your process in your design. Mm-hmm. Well, not, you know. With this as well, I thought that, you know, with the way that we have conversations that have art and design overlapping, I thought that the even the the premise of material and process um, would probably be somewhat opposite across the table. Um, because like as, uh, you know, going through design courses, the material wasn't, it, it was kind of just like bits and bytes, right? It was, it was ones and zeros. Um, and the, the complete ignorance of material like boggle my mind so when i started teaching these advanced design courses uh at the previous uh, university i was at the the thing that caught my attention is students would do pretty decent work but they had no concept of like the physicality of like how paper worked what color looked like laying down how these things interacted when they weren't on a screen and so in the advanced design courses we started doing a whole lot more physical work and the students improved massively mm-hmm. because they were understanding the process because that's just kind of what design sometimes defaults to. But they weren't understanding the materials. And so once they could put the both of them together, they're actually making things that looked a lot nicer. 
Because if you have somebody design a beautiful spread that's going to go on a newsprint, it doesn't really matter. It's going to look like trash. So how do you design for trash materials? It's a different question, and it changes your entire process and how you do things. Um, but process was always the thing that was taught so heavily. It was like, here's your, here's your order, your steps, here's the things you do, here's the things that you think about that are important, and your materials, that it just this stuff will just sit on that, whatever the heck that is at some point. But that doesn't seem, through the conversations that we've had, Ryan, it doesn't seem like that is the way that painting works. Yeah, like in a fine art education space, the process has both because it's a contemporary or modern mm-hmm. educational format, depending on that institution. But um, yeah, so that you have your your process that works through techniques and applications to get to an outcome so that you become familiar with what a process is like. Mm-hmm. And then there's the deviation or the departures that teach you to take steps and, you know, risk outside of that, which falls into the category of play, mm-hmm. which is the necessary leap to um, the conversation about what is your audience and your um, your own personal voice, those kinds of questions that are heavy. And a lot of times, especially back in the day for me, that, that that's what was pressed on you is like, uh, where are you in the work kind of question. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so, and then it, it becomes like, there's, there's something so normative about materials and the way they behave that you have to do a lot of mucking around to get them to behave in atypical ways. Mm-hmm. And that's because the arts are sort of uh, bootstrapped by novelty. So this pressure for novelty means you have to contrive ways of making something that actually departs from the natural flow of, of and behavior of the set of materials interaction with another, you know? And so then that appeals to certain personality types that are curious, you know, that want to want to muck around and put two things together and kind of like the challenge. Yeah. And make a process that works. <laughs> so then you call that discovery. And, and so I think a lot of artists gravitate that way. That, that would be the underlying interest, I think for, for certain types of personalities. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you have people that work, as a fine artist, probably so much like a designer in the other sense that maybe if we were, if we were trying to draw really strong polarities, mm-hmm. you know, you have people that are like, I mean, it's mechanistic reproduction, addition, yeah. streamlined, you know, machine. Like, so when I was, when I was first starting, there was a big conversation on uh, evidence of the hand or not. And there was a lot yeah. of interest in making things look machine made mm. because that's what was happening with technology in you know, in mid nineties, mm-hmm. late nineties, early two thousands, like, like we were shifting, we were, internet was coming and um, this kind of uh, man and machine conversation that was like, people were having, it almost seems funny to me, but, but like, yeah, mm-hmm. like, so like all that was happening and um, these dumb, dumb dichotomies that appeal to ego. So you're like, well, here's this, here's this like dumb problem. And now, <laughs> now like we're, we're answering that question on steroids. We're like, mm-hmm. yeah, we're, you know, we're just going to hang out with robots. Um, so process in the studio was often much more of a messy discovery mm-hmm. and not a prescribed um, outcome. Yeah. Like 
best practices is a phrase that you would hear in a design school, but you wouldn't hear in a fine arts painting school. Well, it's tricky. You, you would actually, that's the thing. It's like, it's, it's hard to say. It depends on what about era. painting itself yeah. or about factors surrounding yeah, studio practice. Well, it yeah, might be yeah, that yeah. The, the best practices just, might be a lot more tangible, mm -hmm. more like uh, concrete sort of actions, yeah. maybe on the design side, but it might be, I'm just speaking, yeah. uh, like maybe more ideological or, or uh, like, well, philosophical. Put it, like put it this way. If you, if you go far enough back, you just got people that were like painters that hung out with Joseph Alberts and, and they yeah. were all doing kind of the same things mm -hmm. and then they would apply them towards different ends. So what I'm saying is they had a common core, if you mm -hmm. will. Yeah. That started changing when you get into like that, depending on the generation of who you studied with and depending on how steeped they were in that, mm -hmm. they were either rebelling against it or they just were like, they couldn't deny it because by virtue of being a professor, you had to teach what you know. And you're mm -hmm. like, I know how to talk about that, even though I'm not a designer, mm -hmm. you know? And so like, um, technology is what really drove a wedge in that. When Photoshop showed up, mm -hmm. that's when things really changed. So like, yeah, I, I just remember like that being like a big wedge. Yeah. It was Photoshop actually like things like that. Like all of a sudden illustration was like, it was already shifting and, and like design was changing. Cause it's like how you make a postcard for a show was way different when you had Photoshop, you know? And so oh, like yeah. design became, so design was able to become much more encapsulated in the technology and become internal to it and not as dependent upon a studio with material processes to achieve mm -hmm. that. Once that happened, that created the disconnect between the painter studio and the the, the other. Because then you started calling like, what do we call design suite or what do we what, what's the things that we call like? There's like studio. I forget all the names now, but yeah, Adobe yeah. like mm -hmm. they it was like this is your studio and it, it was mm -hmm. it was literally the computer and computer your, your computer is an internalization. So yeah, and and it was borrowing, but then you get you know two generations and they are not in a studio because they're on a computer. And boom, the rest is history. Yeah. yeah. So then design becomes more like just a white collar information economy. Like, you know, yeah, it, just it, going it, to the office, doing design for eight hours at my yeah. iMac and then mm -hmm. fundamentally different place now, not getting messy. Yeah. The, messy, the messiest you might be getting is coffee on your shirt. Otherwise, yeah. you're not, you're not bumping the tables. Your, uh, now, the thing is that, of course, there's the older generation that's still doing that, right? Yeah. yeah. But as those are fading out, that knowledge transfer is not happening. And so then, then you have, sort of like embodied states that fulfill um, several generations back um, ideological literature. Yeah. So now now the, the outcomes and the states for which uh, things are brought about accords with the literature as if the gap between those points didn't exist. It's always been this way. Mm -hmm. So like to put it a different way, it's like when you think about a 25 year old or 28 year old designer, mm -hmm. their authority over the tools and the technology is so one-to-one. -one, yeah. They will make you think, and they will, they will think it's just always, this is, this is what it's been. This is fun definitionally what design is. Yeah. And so that's because we, we tend to define through the, we tend to let things operate as definitions and that's a whole conversation about first things like, like, mm -hmm. so if it's all relative and we're materialistically bound to what is, then we're always changing definitions based on what something appears to be, which is a huge problem in our society. So, yeah. so 
Um, yeah, so it makes a conversation like this strange because if if you're like a 90 year old designer, mm-hmm. then there's not you, like you have a history of being in the studio with painters and painting and, and not really like and then like making things and then they move in, in zones but they're not disconnected from a shared space, so to speak, or right. material processes. But if, you know, if you talk to a 30 year old designer right now, they, and they don't, they don't know history and they're not curious and they have just gone deep in on what is the best technology. Mm-hmm. They don't know that this was even a discussion. No. And you can, you can see it clearly if you have eyes for it. Yes. Um, because there is a, there's a huge difference between a designer who has made things in the real world with real world, like hand techniques. Yeah. Um, and a designer who has just simply been clicking a mouse mm-hmm. or a trackpad. It's just totally career. You have no weight, you have no mass, you have no density. You have no Exactly. I was going to say it, it feels thin. Mm-hmm. There's no thickness to yep. it. Like it's, it's you not see it a in animation thing. all the time. Mm-hmm. Animation and, with no weight. And you know, not to, not to jump back into the pool, but, um, that's, those are the designers. That's the design that's going to get outsourced to AI because yes. it doesn't, it doesn't require you. Yeah, You've actually put no well, it never no existed in, in the physical world anyways. Right. When you don't exactly. require yourself to actually hold your lover mm-hmm. with their warm body or cold body or their sick body or their, you know, your spouse, mm-hmm. like when that is not like, like I can set my hand on my wife's lap mm-hmm. or on her hand. And there is so much in that exchange. Yeah. Just the press of my skin that day to her skin that day. You know, my wife grabbed my hand yesterday because I'm on this medication. She's like, oh my gosh, your hand is so hot. I was like, yeah, this prednisone makes my whole body hot, you know, because I have other issues. So like when that, when you are never, when you never smell or hold your child, Mm -hmm. you, you know, when you, like when you don't use the fullness for what you were made, it will show up in the way you conceive of anything else because you're not in contact with what everything is for. Yeah. So, so because you're not, you're, you're in contact with a lot of times with what everything isn't Mm. and there's no weight, there's no weight, there's no demand. Mm -hmm. And so, um, that's why people are hollow chested. They're, they're, they're anemic. There's no, it's no fortitude, no character, no virtue, no principles. And that's why it defaults to raw ideology Mm -hmm. and, a willingness to abandon ship uh, for the next thing as quickly as it comes, because it's just all it's all personal, ideological, and there's no conflict. Right, and it's interesting because I don't know we're wrapping up, but but if you invest yourself in learning a material the way um, Annie talks about there's a cost in that investment and yeah. at the very least you're less likely to abandon ship onto the next mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. That's because right. you've spent time committing to a material and then when the next new shiny thing comes up you're like I see that but I spent a lot of time committed to this thing yeah so so this is this is the problem of modern education and tenure tenure track positions is people that invested so deeply that a certain um majority has bypassed the apex of what the tenure professor has come to understand is and and so the the um the difficulty of contending with updated curricula and and um institutional demands based on the new customer service model i'm putting that in quotations because it makes me want to vomit yeah um 
Yes. With um, deep reservoirs of knowledge because we, we, we've bought too hard into the modernist progressive lie of, of, well, it's inevitable. We got to do the next thing. We just got to jump on board. We gotta, and mm-hmm. so, so the irony is you're gutting your own position as quickly as you're eliminating theirs. Uh, because if knowledge is fluid to the point that it is, then we're just under a flood and yeah. people drown in floods. They don't really swim very well. And so that's what's happening. And that's the deluge of um, information that is we're, we're, we're too saturated. So we can't, you know, you, you know, it's like a sponge. It's full of water. You can't take any more water in. Mm. we can't take any more information. in. so we're yeah. like, well, we'll just we'll shift it over to these external hard drive beings. And then we're we are going to become their tools. Mm-hmm. So we can, so uh, AI is not going to be our tool. The idea is that we will be their tool. They will be there. Uh, we will be their human flesh proxies. Yeah. They'll for, know, they'll know the right path, the right yeah, way forward, yeah, the yeah, right yeah. efficiencies, the right it's, things. It's to inherently do nihilistic. Do. Yeah. So it's, it's an inherently nihilistic point of view and it's, it's an inherently nihilistic point of view and cowardly because you, you're afraid to deal with, I think, first order questions about the nature of life and reality. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a cowardice to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't care. It's what it is. No, I, yeah. I, I don't think anybody around the table disagrees. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But so that, what that means then is like design is design will be art making and design will become boutique in the sense that it won't be permitted in the new the new ethos, like it just won't have any value. Yeah. And the expediency for which things work is, it's just going to, um, seal it off. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, like, because we're, we're like, we're dealing with like nanotechnology and bioengineering and yeah, like we're somewhere totally different than what, where art schools are. I mean, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty shameful. Like, and, and, and then because we're not there, we have no authority over, whether we should be there or not because of the way the uh, global economy works. So like, we're not, we're at the bottom of the food chain, man. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like, so th- my whole thing is like, well, okay, then, uh, why not ask old questions afresh mm-hmm. and, 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 and like slow down a tiny bit and let's, let's think on this because yeah. everybody, everybody uh, most contentious, I'm going to say the most contentious thing I can say, everybody said get vaccinated. And now that, quote unquote technology is killing people statistically. I just saw they're like, we don't know why, but all of a sudden kids are dying at a 30% higher rate than any other time. All of a sudden kids are dying from, um, uh, cancer really high right now. Cancer spiking off the charts, uh, sudden adult, a death syndrome, mm-hmm. myocarditis, like all of these things. Well, no, the technology is going to save us. No, it didn't. Mm-hmm. No, it didn't. And, and everyone was fearful and wanting to go quick and the same, it's like, there's a point where you're like all the people that said they were right were wrong. Mm-hmm. And there's a point where you're like, yeah, we probably should slow down saying it again, not apologizing for it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and the same people that were rushing towards their own demise, um, cause they did are also rushing towards the same demise mm-hmm. with AI. It's incredible. Yeah. And so like, you're going to be out of a life out of a life as quickly as you thought you were going to find your life there. Yeah. Cause it doesn't care about you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't care about you. Cause it's what I said before is it's, it's a non moral entity. Mm-hmm. It cannot care about you. It's a fundamental difference that will always be the case because humans are moral necessarily. So it can make, you know, 
either or decisions, but it is not a moral agent. Yeah. It's just not. Well, I think like even within the space of like materials and process with that, like um, the thing about being engaged in some level of materialism, whatever level you can muster to do for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but having a deep uh, sense of like the materialist world, one of the things is that world is always going to be giving feedback in a way that r- like forces relationship and AI will never do that. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So like technology doesn't really do that. It does mm-hmm. a thing for us. It may be a one way uh, relationship at best. And we ne- are never really quite sure what that relation, which direction that one goes. Um, but the materialist world will always give you feedback in ways that allows you to keep the relationship going. That's the suggestion rich part. Yes. So it, ha- it, it means that there's a responsiveness that is accords to process accords to time in our bodies. Mm-hmm. So, um, geological shifts, geological shifts, atmospheric conditions, like, like expediency is a lie, mm-hmm. uh, at the expense of our own doing. So, so like, that's to say, like we can get off the carousel yeah. and you can go farm and you can build a house and you can hold your wife or your husband and you can love your kids and squeeze your grandpa and pluck food from the ground. It's magic. Mm-hmm. And you can get your hands dirty and you can feel things and, and lo and behold, when you're listening to the birds chirp outside that are actually real and not robots, mm-hmm. um, it actually does stuff to your brain because your brain's meant to accord to that. And all of a sudden, you're not going to be anxious. And then you got to ask questions like, why am I here? Mm-hmm. And then you'll realize that I couldn't have done this. And then it, it just keeps going. And then you come to the reason why it is that you struggle. And, and, and then you find like salvation. Then mm-hmm. you find what you were made for and why everyone's trying to create a fake salvation mm-hmm. that can't save because there's actually a real one. It just, it's just what it is. Like, it's just that it's black and white. Actually, Mm -hmm. it's the most unpopular thing I could ever say, but it's black and white. And, and, you know, um, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness for what can be known, uh, about God is plain, which means what we can know about ourselves is plain. We are Mm -hmm. in dire need of help. Yeah. But we don't want to go to, to the source because the source, uh, uh, helps us see that we're not God. Right. And so we have like Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates and all these people that are like maniacal, um, you know, um, elitist goons full of money and ideas about how to become eternal through technology. That's transhumanism. I mean, this is what we're talking about. Um, and they're anyhow. So it's, it is dire. And I do think people need, need an, you can't pick what you haven't heard. That's why I'll say this stuff. It's like, you need a jolt of an alternative perspective. Otherwise, all you're left with is uh, gritting your teeth and bearing and going, well, it's pretty cool. And it's like, but do you really think that or do you just feel stuck? Mm-hmm. So that's my whole point. It's like, it's not to chastise. It's to say, you're not stuck, mm-hmm. but you have to consider maybe you are wrong about some things that you dismissed. And I know a lot of people are experimenting right now wondering, like, is there a God? Is there like more to this? And uh, this is the time to have the conversation. I mean... You know, uh, this is the time to have the conversation. Yeah. yeah. Now or it's now or never. Like, do it now. Yeah. Start asking the hard questions. Don't don't be afraid to be wrong. And uh, you may actually find your life. And that's what Jesus says. He says, uh, um, you know, what is it profit a man to uh, gain the world and lose his life? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you follow me, you'll find your life. Lay mm-hmm. down your life and you'll find it. So on that note. Yeah, yeah, dude. So yeah, some good stuff from Andy Alpers. Getting us into a lot of good conversations. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, like we say every time uh, we have the show and we actually mean it, uh, we do love you guys. You are a fantastic audience. We'll catch you next time. Peace. Peace.
See ya. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottom.